We are ending August with today's Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, the 31st day of August 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams, and you're listening to KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. By the way, banjo players are all over Eureka Springs today, the 2022 Convention of All Frets. In the city today through Friday, All Frets, a nonprofit musical organization of banjo, ukulele, mandolin, and guitar players from around the country. And we begin our show this Wednesday in Eureka, not for banjos, but for buildings. The Historic District Commission in Eureka Springs has published a 200-page illustrated design manual which updates and clearly illuminates the city's historic district preservation guidelines and regulations. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich discovered, the new regulations are more lenient and explicit. The rugged and remote Ozarks village of Eureka Springs was first incorporated in 1880, but took nearly a century for residents to formally begin to protect and preserve the town's wealth of architecture, ranging from rustic handmade cabins to ornate Victorian-era mansions. In 1970, Eureka was designated the first National Register Historic District in Arkansas, a commission formed eight years later to review and approve any designs for repairs, renovation, new construction, or demolition issued Certificates of Appropriateness. A strictly enforced set of guidelines were finally published in 1999 requiring property owners to submit detailed work plans to obtain necessary permits from the Planning Commission those guidelines are now, after more than two decades, newly updated. Kylie Heverdes is Director of Planning and Community Development for the City of Eureka Springs. The new design guidelines have an entire section on Eureka Springs history and then an entire section on different architectural types. And it has really great sketches of actual buildings here in Eureka and identifies what architectural historians and preservationists call character-defining features that really tell the story of its history and when it was built, what changes were made over time. And that is really what makes these historic districts so special is that it's looking, you can look back into different time periods in our past. The photos and renderings are meant to educate property owners on the village's vernacular architecture and encourage preservation. That can help them understand what design elements are important, um, how they should prioritize preservation projects that they're planning. Um, and help them make informed decisions about altering their building. Under the previous guidelines, basically a bullet list published on the city's website, property owners planning to repaint, repair, renovate, or add on to homes and commercial buildings in the town's historic district were required to provide detailed documentation and appear before the commission to obtain a time-stamped certificate of appropriateness permit. Those who failed could be issued a work stop order and be levied daily fines by the city building inspector. But that's changed for simple maintenance projects. As long as your maintenance project um, includes, you know, the recommended procedures and methods that are outlined, you're free to go ahead and do that. The next three application levels require more scrutiny in regard more ambitious maintenance, repair or replacement of roofs, siding, windows, and masonry. 
as well as installation of new porches and decks. Projects that obviously meet the design guidelines and Secretary of Interior standards, I'm able to just approve in office. Um, a new change to this is also projects on non-contributing buildings, meaning they are not considered historic for a number of reasons. Either they are newer construction, they've had major additions or incompatible changes in the past that likely aren't reversible, they they don't contribute to the district. So they are held kind of at a different level of scrutiny, so to speak. Um, so the majority of exterior changes that folks would want to do to non-contributing properties, I'm able to approve of just in office, which makes it more efficient for the applicant, obviously, but it also keeps the HDC from getting bogged down and reviewing a bunch of project proposals that don't really impact important historic buildings. Two years ago, an initiative petition was circulated to obtain enough signatures to place the question of dissolving the Historic District Commission on the general election ballot. The measure failed, but illustrated growing frustration among property owners claiming the rules were overly burdensome. Last year, the city hired a professional historic preservation consulting team and raised $30,000 in certified local government grant financed with federal funds from the National Park Service and administered by the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program. Probably our number one priority to make this a really public facing project and to make it responsive to the concerns and needs of property owners. So at the very beginning, when we had our consultants here in town, we held a variety of stakeholder focus groups and we tried to organize folks into different categories that might have similar concerns. Um, to try to get more conversation going. Um, so for example, we had homeowners, we had a group that was contractors and realtors. Um, we had a group specifically with just the commissioners um, to talk about their needs. A composite needs assessment from the various stakeholders helped shape a series of draft design guidelines that went through multiple reviews and workshops, including with the public. The updated historic district design guidelines, the author says, continues to adhere to appropriate preservation and maintenance procedures, offer easy-to-understand guidance on new construction, as well as potential investments in the community streetscape and public springs reservations, parks, and trails. As for property owner compliance? It's the job of the building official to make sure that um, when permits are issued and work is completed, that it is within the scope of work that was outlined in the approved project. So if someone goes beyond that or does something that wasn't clearly outlined in the scope of work that the HDC approved, 
then they can essentially be cited for that. They can come back to the HDC to essentially get approval and and modify their project, but they could also potentially face additional fines. If they choose not to comply, there is a appeal process that actually goes through the circuit court. Reaction to the 200-page illustrated guidelines available online at no cost or bound editions are available at City Hall for $15 has been mixed, Heverty says. I have gotten some concern from people that look at this and they're like, oh my gosh, 200 pages. They assume that it's very strict. Do this. Do not do this. Here's the list of materials you can use. Here's the type of fencing you can have. It's not like that. This is really an educational document, and I I wanted it to empower people to really be stewards of their historic homes. The city of Fayetteville counts six neighborhoods listed under the National Register of Historic Places. That assignation, however, conveys no regulatory authority after city planners first authored a design handbook For the Washington Willow Historic District in 2019, city planners circulated a petition to establish, by majority vote of city council, strict historic property guidelines and enforcement. The proposal failed. Early this month, the city hired a consultant to develop a citywide heritage and historic preservation master plan with a $50,000 grant from the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program. Similar to Eureka's new guidelines, Fayetteville city planners aim to educate and engage property owners to make good preservation decisions. Data show that preserved and groomed historic districts support and strengthen property values, stimulate economic activity, and promote a more sustainable future. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Members of the Arkansas School Safety Commission are working to finalize recommendations with a report due to Governor Asa Hutchinson in just over a month. Yesterday, the commission heard concerns from parents. Scott Irwin has two children attending Perryville High School and is a volunteer coach. He said recommendations approved up to this point are good, but believes someone needs to give final approval to each school's preparations. Every individual school is different. And I think somewhere along the way, we need to have a security evaluation process. And I think somebody, an individual from outside looking in, um, make decisions forward for security. Dee Blackwell has two students attending a high school in Fort Smith. She praised commissioners for their work, but wondered what additional steps could be taken to prepare teachers for any possibility. What are new training possibilities for staff so that they feel more comfortable and confident handling any type of challenge, um, whether it's a, an outside intruder or within their classroom from another student. She also cited the need for more mental health training so teachers can identify troubled students. The commission approved recommending that a kit be provided to every school resource officer in case of an active shooter. The kit would include body armor and forcible entry tools. Members also approved suggesting that each school have a master key with copies provided not only to school personnel, but also local law enforcement. Arkansas will receive nearly $12 million for roads and bridges damaged by natural disasters. A press release today from the U.S. Department of Transportation indicates three major projects will take place in northwest and west Arkansas. 
receiving repairs after flooding that took place earlier this year and last year. The money is part of an overall $513 million national package for repairs. And Razorback soccer fans take note, Sunday's home match against Michigan State will now start at noon, an hour earlier than on your schedule. The match can also be seen on the SEC Network Plus. On the next Points of Departure, what does it mean to actually change the world? So I was thinking critically about that and our work as students with refugees, you know, we aim to advocate for refugees and looking at the life terror model. I was like, well, it'd be great if we can really equip students to feel like, you know, they can advocate for pro-refugee policy on their own policies in our government that would actually result in sustainable change through that kind of process of thinking. We started our first ever advocacy training program, which is actually happening right now. We'll hear from students about their experience with Arkansas Global Changemakers, on the role of business in making meaningful social change, how young people can take action on issues in their community, and how international perspectives can help address local problems. That's Points of Departure, available now for free on KUAF.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Every few months, the famous hardware space on Emma Avenue in Springdale becomes a new public art space. The two stories of street-facing windows are turned into art by artists commissioned by Creative Arkansas Community Hub Exchange with funding from the Tyson Family Foundation. Last week, the latest metamorphosis was taking place as Nashville-based artist Amelia Briggs began creating Pony Gang. She was inside the unair conditioned building last week, surveying reams of shiny fabric and mounds of faux fur. She says her idea of what to do with this space began when she listened to a talk from the previous artist. I came to see Nicole's talk, who was the last artist who showed here, and I got to tour her exhibition. And I love the space. It's creepy, but it is really cool. You can tell there's a lot of history here. So do you, as a visual artist, start contemplating almost immediately what can be done? Yes, I was really excited about these two front windows. I love the idea of showing in a space that is accessible to anyone um, at all times, 24-7. I think that's really exciting. It's like a store window, but for art. All right, I'm gonna give a very non-visual artist tour of what I see. Okay. And you can correct me on all terminology. <laughs> I see some very soft, plush, feather-like material different colors? <clears throat> yes, I work a lot with fake fur. Um, I think it's a, a way for me to kind of build texture in the work. And as you can see in the exhibition, there's gonna be, both floors are gonna be completely covered in bright green fake fur. Um, it also reminds me of childhood, kind of like the plush, you know, the plush toys of our childhood. Well, depending on the age of your childhood, it might remind you of the plush shag carpets. Also that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then over here are some sheer, shiny, colorful material. Yeah, so we are creating an interior installation as well. So we're going to have all of these really fabric or really vibrant, colorful fabrics hanging, and it's going to create kind of like a diorama that you're going to be able to see from the outside door. And then there's going to be a big sculpture that's going to sit in the middle of that space. It's exciting that this will be accessible to anybody, even at two in the morning, maybe not the interior, but the exterior. Yes. What does that do for the creative process when you think that anybody and everybody can come by and look? Well, I try not to think about that too much. I've always felt that my work, usually at first glance, feels probably pretty accessible because it is kind of cozy looking. Um, 
you know, it reminds a lot of people of childhood, um, and so it feels kind of welcoming. So I was excited to see how that would function in this space because on first glance, it's kind of, it feels like a child's playroom or something, but then when you kind of spend more time with the work, it starts to feel a little bit more strange or um, unexpected. Surprising? Yeah. Yeah. Now, will you, we're here on the bottom floor. Are, is the, in, how much of this square footage is going to be? We're not going to do anything up here. Well, we do have some sculptures hanging up in the window. I have a series of pieces that are all, um, fit really well into the window. So those are going to be viewable from the outside as well. Do you mind if we quickly go up there and look at them? Yeah. Also makes you think of a different era of retail when it you're does. here. It does, yeah. It almost reminds me of an old department store or something. So there will be one piece in each window with the exception of the center window. And of course, we're on the inside, so I'm, you and I are looking at the backs of them. Yes, so the viewer will see the front. And they're almost kind of function as like letters. They're not letters, but they could read like that because of the way they're shaped. Um, but yeah, they'll be viewable at night as well. They'll be lit so you can see them at night. So this is, the center part is a hand-tufted rug. I have a tufting machine um, that I'll use to make rugs. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, then I, the fake fur. And then um, my main kind of material that I use is reclaimed fabric that I find at thrift stores. And I try to find a fabric that's very dense that can hold up to latex because I coat it in latex. And I kind of use it to form these shapes. Um, that is the, the other part of this piece. Is there a time in your life when you remember, I'm, would, I'm inspired to be an artist? Well, my dad was an artist when I was a child, and so I grew up watching him paint and create things, so it was kind of always a part of my vocabulary. I don't think I ever imagined I would be, you know, a full-time artist, or that that could be my profession, um, but art has always been a part of my life, even from a young age. Let's talk about the title of the... Uh, piece. Or the show. Oh, the show, yes, yeah, sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah, so I titled the show Ponygate, which is a phrase I've been thinking about for a long time. I thought of it when I was driving back from an art residency in New York, and I saw this really weird, elaborate, actual, literal pony gate, um, but it had like a, pictures of ponies on it, and it felt very whimsical. And I've thought about it a lot, and it, it felt very connected to my work. And so when Lucas introduced me to this space, I was intrigued by there's how these, these two columns in the front and it kind of creates almost like this gate in a way. Um, and I've always liked the word pony because it feels kind of also related to my work in the sense of like something that's kind of mystical or magical. I know ponies do exist, but as a child, you know, we think of them as these kind of like magical creatures, um, which also kind of feel related to my work as my work is a lot about play and a lot about invention and things like that. Um, and so it just kind of felt right to title the exhibition Ponygate. Yeah, ponies, sort of that mystical uh, quality, but also very welcoming. Yeah, very welcoming, yeah. So what's gonna happen between now and the opening? Well, we have a lot to do. Um, we need to finish hanging these fabrics to kind of create this uh, kind of interior diorama. And we're waiting on some of the more of the lime green fake fur for the, because that will be on both floors in the front spaces. And of course, 
with any exhibition, with any show, there's a limited run. It's somewhat ephemeral. That's always been something that I've thought if I were an artist, I would struggle with. You put all this time and this work and this effort and this thought and this love into it, and then it ends. Yeah, it's kind of part of it. You know, I was always taught in art school to have a really thick skin. In fact, I think I had some professors that forced us to destroy pieces occasionally, which is something that I've definitely kept as part of my practice. I try not to get too attached to anything and and just it's it's how you keep going, I guess. Finally, again, another question that only a non-artist could ask, so I apologize in <laughs> advance. You have this idea, you get in here, you start working on it, can something change? Can you go, yeah. oh, well, maybe this instead of that? Yeah, and I am, I tend to be a very intuitive in the moment artist. I don't like to have things too planned out or I start to lose interest a little bit. So it was a little nerve wracking coming here with all these materials because until you're physically in the space with the work, you just don't know how it's gonna come together. Um, so I haven't made any too big of changes yet. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But yeah, it, it was challenging to respond to the space because I don't, I'm not based here, so it was tricky to know exactly how it was all going to work. Amelia Briggs, an artist who lives in Nashville, talked with us inside the famous hardware building at 113 West Emma in downtown Springdale last week. An artist talk is scheduled for September 28th at 6 p.m. at the Cash Building at 214 South Main in Springdale. Ponygate will be in place through the end of November. Much more information can be found at downtownspringdale.com. Org. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more available at Amazium.org. There are some items in our lives so utilitarian we may never think about how they're made. Utilitarian, yes, but important. For rock climbers, rope is such a tool. You have to have strong, dependable rope if you're working high above the ground. A new rope manufacturing and designing firm in Rogers is making colorful, durable ropes for outdoor use. Ozarks at Large's Kristen Kite recently talked with the founder of Lakaida Ropes, Pedro Samariba, about his new company. Tell me how one gets a rope business started. Sure. So uh, I have some experience in retail. I was a buyer at Walmart for a year and a half. I was, my claim to fame is that I introduced the bidet category to Walmart stores. Um, but when I when I left Walmart, you know, I still had that passion for retail and products. And so I wanted to combine it with, uh, with a hobby and so kind of make it a, a, a business, but also something that I was personally passionate about. I was like, how can we add design elements to rope and just make it look cooler? That was truly the inception of like the distinguishing characteristic for Lakaida. Asking climbers what they expected out of their ropes made my product a hundred times better than it would have been if it was just Pedro's ideas. It really, it really was a process of letting the customers, the climbers, tell me what they wanted in the ropes so I could go make it happen. Interesting. So you said a lot of uh, climbers. Is this mainly what the ropes are marketed towards for climbers? Or 
are you distributing out to businesses that you wouldn't even think that might need rope, that people don't even think they might need rope? Um, what are those businesses looking like? Everything from first responders and workers at height who want more static lines. So there's, you know, there's two different types of rope. There's dynamic, which was what we used to lead in sport climb and trad climb. There's static ropes, which is what you use to put in bolts. Generally, you can use dynamic, but generally use uh, static to do high angle rescue, right? So your, your firefighters and your, um, your, your arborists, they'll use static lines. So there's, there's that first bifurcation in the market. It's either static or dynamic. Different groups use different ones. But the biggest hurdle on the metered side is there's typically some sort of polyester blend into static lines. And the polyester distorts the ink. That's the permanent ink that I print onto the ropes. So I'll print on like meter 25, but it's all blurred out. So it's not as useful uh, as it is on a dynamic rope where it stands out really sharp. So we're figuring that out. But there's, like I mentioned, there's other things that I have in the mix. They'll have features that are going to make you say, whoa haven't seen that before that's really cool i would prefer that lakaita static rope over any other static rope on the market similar to what we're trying to do with meter ropes in the dynamic market what are these things that they're seeing that would surprise them if they were to buy one of your ropes i've been uh purposely playing that a little close to the chest but i will say if you're doing stuff at night it'll be really useful for that so oh, i see um you i'm I'm not a climber, and you use the term static rope a lot. Can you define static rope? I'd be happy to. So uh, a static rope stretches from like 0 to 3%, maybe. Um, then you have, so like when fully loaded. So I fall on the rope, and it just it doesn't stretch much at all, 0 to 3. A semi-static rope is like 3 to 8% stretch. So it'll have a little give to it, but it, it's not going to soften your fall a ton. A dynamic rope will typically stretch you know, closer to 30%. So it's like very springy. Okay, I think I understand that more. I think that would help the way you explained it. Tell me the meaning behind your business name and what it means. I named it La Caida from the Spanish La Caida, which means the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a top question in people's minds when they hear that is like, well, why don't you just name it like the catch or something because it's a rope. I was like, yeah, you know... I, be honest i didn't really think about about it from that perspective if i had i don't know that it would have changed my decision though because uh the the word for catch in spanish just doesn't have the ring that um la caída does but uh then i put it together so it just it makes it a, a stronger brand name la caída versus la caída um but that's the origin story for the name of the of the company so i feel like the name la caída addresses that directly like it's a fear of the fall and so hopefully this, you know, with using this rope, you can circumvent uh, that fear of fall because, you know, you, you have the best rope on the market. I like that. So are you sort of saying that your ropes could be your ropes could be made so good that even somebody with the phobia of falling would maybe feel a little bit better to have one of your ropes? I guess with the metrics comes comfort. It's a comforting thing to know that they're that we've measured out these distances and that it is, uh, I mean, I think, I think it does help in some people's minds. There's a perception of additional safety because there's, uh, just measured risk here. Measured risk. I like that. Are you primarily going to be making rope or are you going to expand on other products in the future? What else besides ropes? Rope tarps. If you look at the market, 
right now, you have four products out there. They're made by four different brands, and they all kind of look pretty similar. They're gray or black, and then they have a brand name printed on them. What we're going to do is reset that by making rope tarps like cool. Like if you look at what Rumple Blankets has done for for camping blankets, they they printed these really cool designs onto the onto the blankets. We're going to do the same thing with rope tarps. We're going to dye sublimate images um, of iconic. We're going to start with Arkansas, right? We're very focused on being hyper local with our products. Uh, Arkansas Crags, so Horseshoe Canyon Ranch, Sam's Throne, Candy Mountain, and we're going to have some of our sponsored athletes featured on them. We also hope to promote not only the athletes, but the routes and locations. But I say a third layer would be to promote the photographers by putting their name on the on the tarp itself. So the cool thing about it is, a now you want the you want the tarp because it looks really cool and it reminds you of a place that you had really positive experiences. Hopefully, the second thing is it becomes a billboard to attract other people to climb in the state anywhere you take. You take it out to Wyoming, and it's like, oh, that's a cool. I've never seen anything like that. What can I see that tarp? Where is that? Oh, Arkansas, huh? Sam's Throne. That's cool. Maybe I should go check that out. Why do we do that? The way I structured this company is to be part of a flywheel. So you have the Arkansas Climbers Coalition. You have independent bolters and developers. And then you have the climbing community of Arkansas. And now we fit into that little flywheel as the first company to make rock climbing gear. We're going to donate a portion of at least the tarps to the Arkansas Climbers Coalition. The more better routes we have the more it attracts more people to the state. Then ostensibly they come and spend their dollars with local companies because, you know, right, shop local. The more we can then support more development. And so that's the flywheel. Now, how can people uh, contact you? Feel free to DM me on Instagram at Lakata Ropes. You can also reach me by email, pedro at lakataropes.com. Um, those would be the two primary avenues. I'm pretty responsive to both and, and love to hear from the climbing community too. So if you have ideas, like th- that's the other thing too, is what I'm realizing is, I've been talking to a ton of climbers. We go out and we take content together. We climb together. We talk about the products. We talk about the tarps. And from that, I get ideas. And what I, I want to do is like, if, if anyone who hears this like has an idea for a product um, and you want to bring it to market in, in rock climbing and like do it within Arkansas, uh, here in Arkansas, um, let's talk. Like, I would love to help get you there. Um, obviously, I have some experience in, in that field now. <clears throat> And we could partner on it. You know, you could do it on the Lakata brand potentially, or you could, I could just be a, a resource to help you get your own thing started. It doesn't, you know, either way, either way, it will help the clout and the industry of climbing in Arkansas, which is ultimately one of our goals. Pedro Samariba is the founder of Lakata Ropes in Rogers. He talked with Ozarks at Large's Kristen Kite via Zoom. The 27th Annual Homecoming Art Show and Sale continues through September 10th in a gallery next to the Cherokee National Research Center in Tahlequah. The show is designed to recognize Cherokee artists and celebrate their service as storytellers, culture keepers, innovators, and historians. The juried show and competition features 104 pieces by 74 different artists, including seven Cherokee national treasures. Cherokee Nation citizen Carolyn Pallet was awarded the grand prize for her bandolier bag titled Still We Rise. All artwork is available for sale. The public encouraged to vote for the People's Choice Award. If you want more information, just visit CherokeeNation.com. It's scratching the surface on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. 
A team at the Agricultural Experiment Station, that's the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, has been investigating ways to fight a plant pathogen called Pythium, specifically in hydroponic or aquacultural applications. They're using arugula and spinach in their research as those leafy greens take well to hydroponic growth systems. Here's Dr. Ryan Dixon, Assistant Professor of Greenhouse and Controlled Environment Horticulture at the Agricultural Experiment Station, describing how the fungus or water mold attacks plants. And so when the spores get into the systems, they actually produce what's called a zoospore, which means it's a swimming spore, and it can actually sense out plant roots. And so it picks up chemicals released from the plant roots, and it can swim towards the roots to infect it. And so once infection happens, you know, basically it just starts rotting the roots away, and um, disease symptoms can progress very rapidly. You know, within, you know, two weeks, you could start seeing some really significant damage to your crops. They start to disintegrate, and then you get reduced yield and um, lower productivity. While Pythium can be found in soil-based operations as well, it's very problematic in hydroponics because all plants are sharing the same water. So once even one spore gets into the system, the entire operation is at risk. Dr. Dixon says while plant manipulation for disease resistance has been going on since the beginning of plant breeding, this research is looking for molecular markers in the DNA of the plant that might suggest resistance to pythium. And then we're screening those likely candidates to kind of fine-tune and narrow down to um, which selections are actually going to work. You know, we're just some of the first to kind of take that previous scientific information developed for field agriculture, build upon it, and make sure and apply it to hydroponic uh, controlled environment agriculture systems. Dixon says the research is becoming increasingly important because of the increase in popularity of hydroponic growing operations as food production worldwide seeks alternative methods. It's a relatively small sector of agriculture, but it's rapidly growing, especially with these vertical farming type of systems and companies are getting a lot of, of media coverage right now. They're growing clean and efficiently. They're targeting an urban area, so they're basically trying to grow produce locally and deliver it to local consumers. And we are seeing an increase in hydroponic production. You know, pythium losses are actually a major limiting factor um, in the production of hydroponic spinach worldwide. And the spinach business is big in the U.S. By some estimates, spinach is the most popular leafy green in the nation and is a $500 million per year industry. A spinach variety and an arugula variety and other leafy greens and herbs too. We don't want to just limit it to those two. But it's really resistant to pythium and then other root rot pathogens. It would be a real game changer. Um, it'd be a huge scientific achievement as well because, like I said, I mean, there's, there's just little, there's been little progress in this area. For more on this ongoing research, the Agricultural Experiment Station's website at aaes.uada.edu, aaes.uada.edu. I'm Pete Hartman. Scratching the Surface is a production of KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. Do you have one of those crazy wishes for your home that you know will never come true? An omelet bar with a chef in your kitchen ready for you every morning, perhaps? 
What about a baseball field in your backyard? Guess what? Sam Peroni has that. Ready, legend! He can walk out his back door almost any summer night and watch Little League teams practice and play. Peroni Field, west of Fayetteville as you drive toward Lake Weddington, has dugouts, an electronic scoreboard, and a concession stand. Hitters can get a ball out of the park in right or left field, but even Aaron Judge might flinch at the deep dimensions of center field. This month, Sam Peroni, a retired lawyer, hosted the second annual Peroni Field Baseball Tournament for area youth baseball teams. Each year, the tournament raises money for a nonprofit. This summer, it was for the Alzheimer's Association. As the first game of that weekend was unfolding, he talked with me about the field and the tournament. It's become almost a hobby, you know, to maintain it. Me and uh, a fellow by the name of Aubrey York, uh, we, we basically are the maintenance men. So when, when did this project begin? Uh, let's see. Um, I built this field in 2014, and uh, after I build it, you know, if you build it, they'll come. Uh, I had uh, about six or seven coaches contact me about using it for practice. So in the season, I have six or seven teams practice on this field. I have baseball every night. Um, yeah, they come here every night and on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, but... Uh, so we started the practicing in 2014 or so, but uh, we started the tournament unofficially three years ago. And then we decided to do, do it right. And so the actual first annual Peroni Field Invitational was last year. This year's benefits Alzheimer's research. That's right. We're giving the money to the Alzheimer's Association and designated for Alzheimer's research. I want to ask you more about that in a minute, but let's get back to, you say, you know, sometimes we say, I built something or we built something. I, getting the idea that when you say you built it, you built it. You, well, I, I didn't physically build all of it, but I built it. Yes, I built it. I actually um, found some plans to a baseball field and I hired a bulldozer guy and got him out here, and then I had some friends uh, come out, and we measured it all up and, and uh, put the sod down for the infield and just did all of that ourselves, yeah. Uh, for, for listeners, we should point out, I mean, this is the real deal. You've got an electric co- uh, scoreboard. You've got a concession stand. This is a f- Operating 100% field. I've got, I've got double dugouts. Yeah, oh yes, it's a 100% field. I've got electricity in the dugouts if somebody wants to put up a pitching machine or something. Not during the game, of course, but um, but I've, I've tried to fix it up for them. Then I've got a playset for the little ones to come out, uh, their brothers and sisters. They have something to do out here rather than play in the dirt, you know. So I'm a big baseball fan, and I love the right field porch. It looks like if you could pull the ball down there, you got a chance yes. of getting out of here. Yes. Left field, but center field's where home runs go to die. It's like old Yankee Stadium right there. <laughs> the old Yankee Stadium. All right. Are you a baseball person? Oh, I played uh, Little League baseball. Um, I've always loved baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think it's America's sport, and uh, um, it's just a good feeling for me to see the kids come out and practice. And this year for Alzheimer's Association, do you mind telling us why you picked that no, nonprofit? I don't mind at all. Uh, my wife's in a home for Alzheimer's patients. She's been there uh, just about two years. And um, 
uh, the guy that, that helps me put this on, he and I decided that it, it, because of her, we would designate the money to Alzheimer's research. And uh, it, so the start, we started the tournament for two reasons. Number one, we started it so the kids would have a tournament. And then secondly, we decided we'd have a charity tournament and we'd donate the money to Alzheimer's research. And so there'll be a check presentation at the end of the games tomorrow? Yes, there'll be a check presentation. There'll also be trophy presentation. All the, the members of the winning team get a little trophy. Uh, the the runner-up gets a little medallion. And uh, we've also put a plaque up in the dugout for the winning team as well. One thing I love is that the dugouts are on the same side. There's There's something very... I don't know, cooperative about that. <laughs> well, there's actually, now I, I put something over it, but there's actually a little window there where they can even look through and see each other or, or fuss at each other, whichever they'd like to do. <laughs> okay, and this is a dream of mine that I could come out of my back door and every night see baseball? Right. Oh, yeah, no, listen, it, it, it really, it, it, it's very comforting to see them out here playing. It really is. And they're all, they all just really enjoy coming out here and playing. They're late getting here, but we're actually going to put some tents up in the outfield because we have spectators last year that completely surrounded the uh, baseball field, except for the, the weeds over there in the next pasture. Um, so we'll have two tents, and then we put this uh, up so we'd have some cover for people because it got kind of warm last year when we had it. And this year, I think people will be more comfortable uh, with all of this. And you are a retired attorney? A lawyer, yes. Lawyer, yeah. Uh -huh. Is there any similarity between baseball and the law? Baseball and the law. Yes, I think there is. And that is preparation. I'm a big believer in preparation. Um, all the preparation that goes into this tournament for it to go off and everybody enjoy themselves is tremendous. I use volunteers, but there's a lot that goes into this. And without preparation, people would come out here. We wouldn't have enough supplies in the concession stand. They have to sit in the sun, just a lot of different things. Uh, the the uh, bathroom wouldn't work properly or maybe be something that people didn't want to go into. Uh, there's a whole lot of that stuff that, uh, that needs to be taken care of, and that's the same way with the law. Um, I've always believed that the lawyers that prepare the most and the best are the best lawyers. Sam, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Sam Peroni talked earlier this month by the concession stand called Sam Shack at the baseball field built in his backyard west of Fayetteville, nearing Lake Weddington. As he mentioned, this year's baseball tournament raised money and awareness for Alzheimer's Association. And while I was at Peroni Field, I also talked with Kirsten Dickens, the executive director of the Arkansas chapter of Alzheimer's Association. We talked about their work, and we'll hear that conversation on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And don't forget, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our show. Okay, 
talking baseball on today's show, and one of the most popular promotions at any ballpark is a prized bobblehead. And nobody may care about bobbleheads more than Phil Sklar. Phil is co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee. When we received a press release earlier this month that the museum was launching a new line of bobbleheads, we noticed. When we read further that these latest bobbleheads weren't athletes but Supreme Court justices, we were intrigued and called him. We'll get to those legal bobbleheads in a bit, but first, a bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum? Yeah, so it really just started with a passion for collecting. Um, I started collecting baseball cards when I was growing up, thanks to my dad, who collected cards when he grew up and carried that tradition on. And so, you know, that really carried on through, you know, when I was about 18, um, a friend of mine from high school who uh, was working for a minor league baseball team in our hometown of Rockford, Illinois. Um, they gave away a bobblehead for the first time as a team, and he got one and thought it was cool. And, you know, we both uh, thought, hey, you know, we can build up a collection of bobbleheads by going to some games. And so we'd circle the bobblehead dates on the calendar. And before we knew it, that one bobblehead turned into a display case and then uh, several display cases. And, you know, we started traveling to go to different baseball games and uh, places across the the uh, U.S. and before we knew it, our collection had grown out of control, and we had about three thousand unique bobbleheads. And we said, "Oh, what are we going to do with all these?" And at the same time, we started producing bobbleheads, and so we put the idea to have a one-of-a-kind museum dedicated to bobbleheads, uh, along with the company that produces bobbleheads. And here we are with the only museum uh, in the world dedicated to bobbleheads. How many bobbleheads are on display at the museum? Yes, we have about 7,000 unique bobbleheads on display at any given time. We do some rotating, so, you know, we put in new bobbleheads and take out some extras or, you know, some players may have more than they really need on display. So we do a lot of switching around so people who visit maybe last year come again when they're in Milwaukee and see a lot of new bobbleheads when they bring, uh, you know, some new guests into the museum. I I have a very uh, uh, small I guess you would say, collection, um, mainly from going to minor league games or going to a game and happening to be on the day that a bobblehead was being given out. And then say I have like nine or ten, three of them are the same person, different bobbleheads, Salvador Perez, so I'm one, you know, catcher of the Kansas City Royals. I'm wondering if there is a figure, a, a, a historical figure that has been represented or is represented in the Hall of Fame more than others. Yeah, there definitely are some players out there who have had uh, – quite a few bobbleheads and um you know these days lebron james falls in that category um aaron judge from the yankees um there's quite a few of the modern players that just have had more because they've more bobbleheads have been produced uh, since 1999 which is when the first um you know the stadium giveaway bobblehead craze really started uh so yeah players who played in the 80s and 70s don't have very many bobbleheads unless the team you know went back and produced them or you know, a retailer like us or another manufacturer went back and produced them. But, you know, players and figures from, you know, more past 30 years have, have had more bobbleheads uh, in general. And you mentioned you produce them, and we think of bobbleheads. I think most of us think of bobbleheads primarily as sports figures, but there is this new set that you're producing that these are not uh, sports figures. These are figures from the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, so yeah, bobbleheads, when people when people think of them, they think of baseball and sports generally. But yeah, political bobbleheads have actually been around since 
uh, in the early 1960s, there was a bobblehead of John F. Kennedy, and then shortly after that, quite a few other presidents and historical figures from the time. And so there's been some Supreme Court bobbleheads in the past, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg being the most popular when it comes to bobbleheads. But yeah, there's never been um, you know a series that has them all you know with that Supreme Court base. And uh, we went back and did several of the historical justices as well as all the current justices. So um, everybody who's currently on the bench, as well as a lot of the more notable names from the past, like Thurgood Marshall and um, Sandra Day O'Connor and several of those names that are household names, especially in the legal community. And that we get a lot of requests for them, which is you know sort of surprising for us. And um, so far since we released them, they've surpassed our expectations. And uh, the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, um, has been the most popular recently. Uh, but also we have Amy Coney Barrett and, uh, you know, just uh, the whole selection now. What does it take to get a bobblehead ready that you think well represents a living or historical figure? Yeah, so the historical figures are, are the most difficult just because, you know, a lot of their faces are just so recognizable. So if you're doing a bobblehead of, you know, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or even you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the current Supreme Court justices, people know exactly what they look like. And so when, you know, somebody sees that head for the first time on the bobblehead, we want them to say, oh, yeah, that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or that's, um, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, because uh, otherwise, you know, it's not very fun for us. And bobbleheads are all we do. So we put a lot of attention to detail. So from the initial, you know, design, through uh, the mold process, and each bobblehead uh, initially is hand molded, so it's a, a very, you know, detailed process, and something that you know takes a lot of time and effort on our end to make sure that you know the final product is uh, representative of the person and something we're we're proud of. Do you? I'm sure you have heard from people after you announced this Supreme Court bobblehead series that say would say, "Hey, this is great," but what about? Hey, where's William Howard Taft? That sort of thing. Yeah, so we did get, we always pay attention to those. We keep those emails and, um, you know, take notes and and watch and see what people are asking for. So, yeah, there'll be some more coming. Uh, This is the first series. So we definitely have some more, you know, that we had in the works prior to this, as well as, you know, taking into account people's suggestions. And if they sell well, we'll continue to sort of add to that line and see, you know, maybe someday we'll have uh, all 116, I believe now. Supreme Court justices in, in bobblehead form. Some of them may only have a, a limited run of 50 or 100, while others may have, you know, hundreds or thousands. You know, um, we are in a polarized, politicized time, and and the Supreme Court is, is polarizing perhaps as any entity right now. It should be pointed out, yours is a bipartisan SCOTUS series. It is, yeah. So we did, you know, we did sort of our research and we're always you know, staying in tune with the news. And obviously, like, as you mentioned, the uh, Supreme Court's been in the news now more than, you know, arguably ever. Uh, and so we thought it was a, a good time to, to put the series out. Uh, just, you know, it's their educational as well as, you know, collectible. So it does spark conversation about the Supreme Court and about our government and, and policies and so forth. Where can they find out about the Hall of Fame and Museum, and these bobbleheads. Yes, you can go to bobbleheadhall.com, so bobblehead, H-A-L-L.com, and find the bobbleheads there. And also you can take a virtual tour if you're 
not planning to be in the Milwaukee area anytime soon. Uh, so you can walk through in 360 degrees and see the museum and some of the exhibits. Uh, and we're yeah located right in downtown Milwaukee and open seven days a week. Is there a bobblehead out there that you just want in the Museum and Hall of Fame that you don't have possession of? Uh, so we were just talking about one with the staff yesterday, um, a New York Yankees 14-inch promotional bobblehead from uh, it was a 1960-61 season, recently uh, sold for $90,000. So that'd be a good one to have on display. That was the highest selling price for a bobblehead. It's never complete, is it? This, this, this will keep going. You'll keep collecting. Oh, yeah, that is definitely true. And, you know, as long as new people and uh, new characters come about, we'll continue to be able to make new bobbleheads, collect new bobbleheads. And so, yeah, it is sort of a never-ending opportunity. Phil Sklar is co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee. Much more about all those bobbleheads can be found at bobbleheadhall.com. Mic check, mic check. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's new underwriting director. KUAF's news and music programming reaches more than 50,000 people each week over the air, online, and through our iOS app. And you could reach our audience with your business or organization by underwriting on KUAF. To learn more about underwriting, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. A quick reminder that a new documentary from our friends at Arkansas PBS exploring the importance of soil is premiering tomorrow night. Dirt will delve into how Arkansas farmers, ranchers, and others are conserving their soil, water, air, and other natural resources, as well as improving their operations and helping the environment with sustainability methods. Broadcast premiere tomorrow night. More information at myarpbs.org. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lincoln. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors include a Jacqueline Froelich and Kristen Kite. Scratching the Surface is hosted and produced by Pete Hartman in the Nancy Blair Operations Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Additional reporting heard today provided by the news staff at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our Director of Community Engagement at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Quick reminder that if you couldn't take in all the music from Roots Festival this weekend, and I don't think it was humanly possible to do so, we're going to help you out. Second half of our Friday show as we go into a three-day weekend, we'll highlight some of the music that took place for free at the Fayetteville Public Library Saturday afternoon. And then our good buddy, Timothy Dennis, will be with you Labor Day with much more of the Roots Festival music that will be all throughout the Labor Day edition of Ozarks at Large. So some music Friday, a lot of music Monday. You can always find us at ozarksatlarge.com. Thanks for finding us on this Wednesday. Happy end of August. Back tomorrow. I'm Kyle Callums.